Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. Doctors, trusted professionals whose main job is to get you back on your feet or to keep you on your feet, but so many of us still try to avoid them. There's something unsettling about coming face to face with your own health, but for some doctors, health plays no role at all. And how could you possibly tell if the one standing at your bedside is a caretaker or an angel of death? Michael Swango was a very smart man. In high school, he was already considered a genius, with an IQ of around 160. Named High School Student of the Year, he graduated at the top of his class. He was destined for great things, such as becoming a doctor. And that's exactly what he decided to do. In medical school, however, Swango ran into a few problems. He would often put his studies off so that he could work as an ambulance attendant. It had become obvious to some that Swango had a certain addiction for being around death and destruction. He would get excited when approaching car wrecks. Many of the victims he would be assigned to take care of would end up experiencing life-threatening emergencies. Five of them even died under his care. Swango hadn't done nearly as well in university as he had in high school, and due to the fact that he put off so much of his work and he'd often falsify course requirements, he was almost kicked out of medical school. But despite all of this, Swango was accepted in 1983 into an internship at Ohio State University's Medical Center. It was here that Swango began to care for patients one-on-one. Multiple patients complained that a certain blonde doctor fitting his description had given them something that harmed them. One woman was even recovering nicely from an automobile accident. Swango dropped by a room to take blood samples, and shortly thereafter, the woman was dead. Because of all these incidents, staff took notice and reported him. However, to avoid potential lawsuits, the hospital refused to go to authorities and simply let him finish out the year without rehiring him afterwards. He was eventually given another job, this time in Illinois. He'd often come in bearing gifts for his co-workers, coffee and desserts to eat and each time his co-workers would fall violently ill. He was eventually found out and promptly fired. It had seemed that Swango was a menace, and an untouchable menace at that. His co-workers eventually found out that he was trying to poison them, and for that, he spent five years in prison. But once he was released, he simply continued to practice. He managed to work several other jobs where he would have access to his insatiable hunger for murder. He changed his name, falsified documents, and moved from place to place, always in search for more people to kill. He even began poisoning his own girlfriend. In 1994, with the FBI close at his heels, Swango fled the country for Zimbabwe. While in Zimbabwe, he was swiftly suspended for the suspicion of, yet again, killing his patients. But Swango continued to do his dirty work, whether it involved hiring a lawyer or just moving on. Even the woman who had housed him during his stay ended up being poisoned. No one was safe. 
Thankfully, Swango was eventually brought to justice and sentenced to life in prison without parole. It is believed that he is responsible for over 60 murders. Imagine having to give birth to a child, but your midwife, the one attending you, is the director of the maternity hospital. You must be in pretty good hands, right? Miyuki Ishikawa was an experienced midwife from Japan. She would assist countless mothers through the ordeal of childbirth, and she did her job very well. But when the 1940s came, so came a baby boom. And with the boom came poor mothers, far too poor to care for their own children adequately. Ishikawa ran into a bit of a predicament. Her maternity hospital was already practically overflowing with newborns. She couldn't send them off to live with their mothers, and there weren't enough charitable services to go around. So, out of the kindness of her heart, she devised a very permanent solution to the problem. Ishikawa began taking in the newborns so the mothers didn't have to. Thinking their child had adequate care, they would sleep better at night that way. The newborns, however, weren't so lucky. Ishikawa would keep the babies in the building, sure, but without the proper resources to care for them, the babies would be neglected, ignored. It'd be like they weren't even there, and right in the place they were set, they would wither and die from hunger or dehydration. Ishikawa would continue this practice for some time, and as babies' bodies began to pile up, she would take them and hide them throughout the city. Because of her detestable acts, nearly all of the other midwives of the hospital resigned. Ishikawa, unfazed, began to expand her practice. She, with the aid of her husband, would begin to collect payment for her unique service convincing the mothers that they'd never be able to afford the child. This was a much more inexpensive option. They were even able to employ a doctor in on the scheme who would gladly falsify death certificates. Ishikawa, her husband, and their doctor were all caught after police accidentally stumbled upon five dead babies in a bag. When she was arrested in 1948, she blamed the parents for having abandoned their children, which, oddly enough, she received a lot of public support for. But overall, she was sentenced to prison. Ishikawa spent less than 10 years in prison for her actions and is believed she is linked to the deaths of over 160 newborns. Dr. Death is a name adopted by a number of different figures throughout history, some real and some fictional, but no one deserved the title quite as much as Dr. Harold Shipman. As a teenager, Harold Shipman became very familiar with the medical profession. His mother battled lung cancer until she passed away in 1963. One of the most interesting things to him, however, was the power of morphine. He graduated from Leeds University Medical School in 1970 and afterwards took up a job as a general practitioner. Unfortunately, only four years after graduating, Shipman began to abuse his position, prescribing himself prescription painkillers to which he became addicted. He was caught after some time and fired, fined, and sent to rehab. However, his license to practice medicine 
was still in place. Once released from rehab, he was able to convince a hiring committee that he was a changed man, and truth be told, he was. Shipman received a clean slate and worked as a general practitioner in a different hospital until 1993. It was at this time that he set up a private practice where he would specialize in house calls. He'd drop by the bedsides of the elderly to administer care. Truth be told, he would see to the death of most of these people by injecting them with overdoses of heroin, then simply walking away. For reasons he kept to himself, Shipman was more partial to killing elderly women, but he also killed his fair share of men as well. However, not all of them elderly. His youngest victim was only 41 years old. After murdering their relatives, Shipman would confront grieving family members and suggest that their lost love should be cremated. Of course, this was to cover his tracks, and a surprising number of people agreed and willingly signed off on destroying all of the evidence. It was such a surprising number that a local funeral parlor expressed concerns to the coroner over the number of deaths under Shipman's care and the number of cremation forms for elderly women. This information was brought to police, but they were unable to find sufficient evidence to bring forward charges. Shipman continued to kill until his final victim, Kathleen Grundy, a former mayor and an elderly woman in very good health, was found dead in her home in 1998. Grundy's daughter was a lawyer and had received word that her mother had left a will behind. When she read it, it had excluded Grundy's children and grandchildren, but left 386,000 pounds to Dr. Harold Shipman. Luckily, Grundy's body hadn't been cremated like so many others, and her body was promptly exhumed. It was found that she had heroin in her system, which led to further investigations and eventually to the collapse of Dr. Death himself. In 2000, Harold Shipman was arrested and sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences, plus four more years for forging the will. But he only ended up serving four years until he hanged himself with his own bedsheets inside his cell. Though he was only found guilty for 15 murders, that's all they could prove. But it is well known that Harold Shipman is linked to over 300 murders. Unbelievable how dedicated some people are to murder. They'll dedicate most of their lives just for the chance of ending yours. Being courteous to a waiter or waitress goes without saying. They're delivering you your food. And that may just go double for nurses, the ones delivering you your potentially life-saving medication. But don't worry too much. Some nurses aren't bothered by nasty patients. They'll just kill you either way. Even though Charles Cullen worked everywhere from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, he couldn't hold down a nursing job due to his disturbing behavior. But there were no investigations launched to look deeper, and he was able to continue working and killing. Charles killed five patients while working at St. Luke's University Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he was forced to resign. Then, his murder count grew by 13 over the course of a year while working at New Jersey Somerset Medical Center. His final victim, Father Florian Gall, had been recovering from pneumonia when he suddenly died. 
While investigating the unexpected death, doctors found unusually high levels of digoxin, a medicine used to treat irregular heartbeat, in his blood, indicating he'd been murdered. Immediate suspicion fell upon Charles, who worked night shift each time the mysterious deaths occurred. Charles' victims ranged in age from 21-year-old Michael Stranko to the elderly, but he was adamant that he thought he was helping, though he couldn't give a reason for killing people that weren't terminally ill. Because Charles killed undetected for 16 years, it is thought he could have upwards of 300 victims. Charles was convicted on 29 of the murders and sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences with no chance for parole. If it is found he killed in higher numbers, he could become the most prolific serial killer in American history. Janine Ann Jones worked in the pediatric ICU at Bexar County Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, and whenever she was around, Children seemed to die. The beautician-turned-nurse was always working when babies in the ICU suffered cardiac arrest or respiratory failure unrelated to their pre-existing conditions. The hospital was fearful of legal repercussions from the rise in infant deaths and forced Janine to resign. She found another job at a pediatric physician's clinic in Kerrville, Texas. It was here that Janine killed 15-month-old Chelsea McClellan with a dose of succinicoline, a potent drug that paralyzes the skeletal and respiratory muscles. Investigators found that Chelsea wasn't her only victim. She had poisoned at least six other children with various muscle relaxants. She claimed she had made the children sick with the intent to revive them and be seen as a savior. But many of the infants succumbed to drugs before she could save them. It is believed she possibly murdered up to 46 children, though due to missing hospital records, only one could be proven. She was sentenced to a total of 159 years behind bars. However, due to a Texas law that prevents overcrowding in prisons, Janine is expected to be released from jail in 2018 for good behavior after only serving 33 years of her sentence. If found guilty of killing even one more of her 46 suspected victims, she will remain behind bars for the rest of her life. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories. A paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Ex-Marine turned nurse Robert Diaz liked to be called doctor, even though he never received the proper credentials. But in 1981, while working at three separate hospitals in Los Angeles, the 42-year-old often predicted patients' deaths with concerning accuracy. The deaths occurred in intensive care units in the pre-dawn hours, and each victim suffered dizziness and violent seizures before their bodies turned blue and they died. When authorities received an anonymous tip from someone who claimed 19 patients under Robert Diaz's care all died of similar causes, 
They questioned him. At first, he denied any involvement, saying he didn't know how or why his patients suffered eerily similar fates, but eventually he confessed. Robert revealed he injected his elderly victims with lethal doses of lidocaine, a drug used to regulate the heartbeat, and destroyed medical records to hide what he'd done. Robert Diaz's playing doctor resulted in 12 confirmed deaths, though the number could be as high as 38. He was sentenced to death in 1984, however, he passed away in 2010 from natural causes before the sentence could be carried out. At Lane's Hospital in Vienna, Austria, four nurses became fellow friends and murderers, and it all began with 23-year-old Valtraud Wagner when she injected one of her patients with a deadly dose of morphine. Following the murder, Valtraud let three other nurses in on her secret, and surprisingly, they too began killing with her. From 1983 to 1989, Valtraud Wagner, Irene Lidoff, Maria Gruber, and Stefania Meyer ran a murder squad, disposing of nuisance patients with various injections of insulin and tranquilizers, but also by drowning them in their own hospital beds. The women, nicknamed the Lane's Angels of Death, would hold down patients and pour water down their throats until they died. Because many elderly people die with fluid in their lungs, the women continued killing for six years undetected. It wasn't until 1991 that they were caught. At first, they claimed they were mercy killings, but as many of their victims weren't terminally ill, no one bought it. They confessed to 49 murders, but authorities believe the number could be well over 200. All of the women were convicted on murder or manslaughter charges and were set to spend decades in prison. As of 2008, all four women have been released and given new identities to conceal their pasts, enraging much of the Austrian public who fear having four serial killers walking in their midst. Texas native Efren Saldivar was 32 years old when he became a respiratory therapist at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center in California. From 1996 to 1997, he often worked the graveyard shift where his co-workers noticed his unusual behavior. Fellow nurses saw the warning signs that Efren was killing his patients, but remained silent for over a year. One fellow employee glimpsed unauthorized prescription drugs concealed within Efren's work locker. Another nurse overheard him admit he'd given the wrong drugs to a female patient. These weren't the worst of his misdeeds, however, and Efren was careful when choosing his victims to avoid detection. He injected elderly patients near death with a muscle relaxant called Pavulon, which resulted in respiratory failure. The hospital launched an investigation against him and he was eventually terminated. Later, he confessed to killing six of his patients in times of low staffing in order to lessen his workload. Efren pled guilty in 2002 to avoid the death penalty and was handed six consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole. However, he confessed he'd stopped counting his killings after his 60th in 1994, meaning the total could be much higher. Beverly Allett often found herself in the position of caregiver. Growing up, she had three siblings, took on babysitting jobs, and later took nursing classes at Grantham College in Lincolnshire, England. It was there where she became a harbinger of death. 
while Beverly was employed in the children's ward at Grantham and Kestevin Hospital in 1991, an alarming number of children suffered and died from cardiac arrest, despite being admitted for unrelated ailments. Seven-week-old Liam Taylor, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick, and two-month-old Becky Phillips all died while under Beverly's care, but no one suspected her. Becky Phillips' parents were even so moved by her compassion that they asked Beverly to be the godmother to Becky's twin sister, Katie Phillips. What they didn't know was that Beverly gave Katie a deadly amount of insulin, resulting in permanent brain damage, partial blindness, and paralysis. Katie survived, as did nine of her other victims, but 15-month-old Claire Peck was the final child to die before the hospital staff alerted the police. All the unexpected deaths had occurred while Beverly was on duty, and she had the means to accomplish the killings. Though it is unclear why Beverly murdered children, she was diagnosed with Munchausen syndrome by proxy while in prison, a disorder in which she as a caretaker intentionally harmed children to gain attention. Beverly was sentenced to 13 life sentences and will likely never step out of Rampton Secure Hospital again. Richard Angelo fit right in at the Good Samaritan Hospital in New York as a former Eagle Scout and volunteer firefighter. The 25-year-old student's background made him an excellent nurse, but Richard's desire to play the hero would cost others their lives. Though he was good in crisis and was well qualified for the job, several co-workers noticed that many of his patients suffered sudden numbness all over the body, followed by the inability to speak and finally respiratory failure. Only 12 of Richard's patients survived, leaving 25 dead while under his watch. Authorities had 10 of his former patients' bodies exhumed and tested, and they all came back positive for various paralytic drugs, such as pavulon and anectine, drugs that were later found in Richard's apartment. With the evidence mounting against him, Richard confessed his low self-confidence fueled a deadly desire to be praised as a hero, which led him to intentionally cause a life-threatening situation so that he could step in and save the day. Unfortunately, when playing with life and death, he wasn't able to save 25 of his patients, and in total he was sentenced to 50 years to life for his crimes. He is still serving out his sentence today at the Great Meadow Correctional Facility in New York. 26-year-old Jane Topan found passion in nursing. Her empathetic and upbeat attitude with patients earned her the nickname Jolly Jane. But beneath her happy demeanor was a dark sexual obsession. As a nursing student, she experimented on her patients, altering dosage sizes of morphine and atropine just to observe the outcome. In order to conceal her deeds, she altered medical charts and spent a suspicious amount of time alone with her patients. Once she had privacy, she poisoned her patients to the brink of death and crawled into bed beside them to hold them as they died, a feeling she claimed gave her a sexual thrill. After being fired from Massachusetts General Hospital in 1890, Jane worked as a private nurse where her desire to kill strengthened upon meeting the Davis family in 1901. After Mrs. Davis passed away following a visit with Jane, she was hired as a nurse for the remainder of the family, who all met unexpected deaths in the months that followed. One of the bodies was exhumed and tested positive for poison. Jane had murdered the entire family. 
While in police custody, she confessed to killing 33 of her former patients, though it's believed she killed upwards of 70 people total. Jane Topan was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and due to her history of suicide attempts, she was committed to Taunton Insane Hospital for the rest of her life until her death in 1938. Victorine Ochua of Stockport, England, was a nurse at Stepping Hill Hospital until January 2012, when his fellow nurses realized he may not have the temperament or proper qualifications to be practicing medicine. Victorino's bedside manner wasn't exactly comforting. He often became angry with his patients' families and was allegedly reprimanded by his bosses for his temper. However, instead of changing his ways, he took out his frustrations on the sick and helpless, Suddenly, nurses noticed a large number of their patients had dangerously low blood sugar levels, and two people, Tracy Arden and Derek Weaver, even died as a result. Another victim survived, but was left with permanent brain damage. The connection to all the strange activity was Victorino. Police found his medical accreditations were possibly forged, and that he doubled several patients' prescription dosages. But it wasn't until they found a handwritten 13-page confession from Victorino that they realized the true scope of his depravity. Victorino called himself an angel turned into an evil person and believed there was a devil residing within him. He contaminated 24 patients' saline drops with high levels of insulin and gave the poison bags to his fellow nurses. Reportedly, he enjoyed watching his co-workers unknowingly inflict pain on their patients. After wading through hours of CCTV footage and questioning hundreds of staff members, authorities were finally able to convict Victorino on two counts of murder. He received 25 life sentences and won't be eligible for parole until he served for 35 years. 42-year-old Daniela Poggiali worked in the healthcare industry for 17 years and had a reputation for excelling at her job. However, some of her co-workers saw her in a different light. From 2012 to 2014, while working at the Umberto I Hospital in Lugo, Italy, fellow nurses noticed Daniela administering sedatives and laxatives to her patients to irritate the next shift. Daniela also had images on her phone showing her smiling while posing next to a deceased patient, an action she later said she regretted. Still, something was off about Daniela. Medical records show that over the course of two years, Daniela was present at 96 patient deaths, twice as many as her co-workers. Then her 78-year-old patient, Rosa Calderoni, went into cardiac arrest and died shortly after. The medical examiner found deadly traces of potassium chloride in her system, the same chemical used in lethal injections in the United States. Authorities estimate that Daniela killed anywhere from 38 to 96 people. Investigators believe that these were no mercy killings, but a power trip to rid herself of particularly troublesome patients. Daniela claims she is innocent and that she has never harmed her patients, but the prosecutor has labeled her a megalomaniac with a god complex. If she is found guilty of all 96 deaths, she will go down in history as one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. 
Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.